Open your Bibles to Hebrews 12. As we continue our study in this great letter or this sermon, as it likely is. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. I don't know if you're like me, but there is always a after-Christmas lull that comes There's not as much excitement about the days that are coming. New Year's is not, it does not have the same appeal as Christmas, in my opinion. Uh, And there are a great many Mondays yet to come. And yet we come to a text this morning that summons us to run. And after eating so much and doing so much and being so tired, I don't know if any of us really feel like running right now in a literal sense. We're tired, but the summons is to run. As I said last week, I feel like running is a scam. We, it's, there's, no one really enjoys it. We have a few people who do it, but I would argue that it's more, and I've done it before, but it's more the, it, the ends justify the means in, uh, in the case of running. We do it because of what we want at the end of it. There's really nothing about it that's enjoyable that much. Uh, we should all swim instead of run and not destroy our knees. Anyway, that, so that already puts us emotionally, I think, at odds with the imagery of this text. Last week we discussed this idea of getting ready to run. The author summons us to lay aside the weights and the sin which so easily entangles us. The imagery is that when we let things crowd our attention and our desires and our affections, they are, as it were, uh, people running too closely to us or walking even too closely to us and not enabling us to get into our stride because they're so crowded around us. They're, they're getting tangled. Our, our legs are getting tangled up and we can't run because we've allowed these things to entangle us. We've, we've held on to them and they have made us uh, incapable of running. So that was last week, and you know I'm not really sure how many weeks we'll be here I, in, in these three verses. I hope to finish before February, but we'll see. Next week, we'll take a break from this and do our traditional uh, state of the pulpit sermon. We'll, in that, we'll summarize 2020 uh, from a pastoral and spiritual perspective and uh, explain my hopes for 2021 for you and our church. But this week, we're going to look at this phrase. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. And we'll jump right into it. 
Let us run. In the book of Hebrews, there are 14 let us statements. And that's twice as many as the second place book in the New Testament, and more than twice as many as in a book like Romans. And this is number 10 in the 14, not that the number or the sequence matters that much. But the point is, this is not the first time that we have seen the communal nature of our faith, the communal nature of our confession and our hope. It's been mentioned over and over and over. It's not just you and Jesus. You'll hear me say that over and over and over. If your relationship is merely vertical between you and the Lord, you don't have a real relationship with the Lord. Let us run. We are to do this. The implication is, if you try to do it alone, one, it's not going to work. And two, more fundamentally, it's disobedience. So, how do you run a race together? Are you helping people run? Can they make it easier on you? If you've ever been a runner or talked to anyone who has been a serious runner, or if you've read any stories about the great runners in, the, in human history, you know that the answer is yes. You can, in fact, even though you're not running for them, you can, by running with them, help them run, and they help you. Now, the imagery the author uses and the actual words in the original are not limited to the idea of running, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But let's just stick with the single imagery of running for now. Being helped to run and helping others run is exactly how it is that we will run this race set before us. If you try to run it alone, you won't run this race with endurance. Running it together is how we will run it with endurance. It's not either or. It's both and. You must be a helper and be helped. There is such clarity if you really see this and buy into it. That your Christian life is incomplete and you are unable to attain to the levels of holiness and obedience that you're supposed to without other people's help, you need help to be holy, as I've mentioned a few weeks ago. Do you believe that? You need help to be holy. And not just from the Lord directly, from your brothers and sisters in this room. Are you living like you need help? And further, other people need your help to be holy. And not just from the Lord. You can pray for them if you want to. But they need help directly from you. We're running this race together and we must help each other. And by God's providence, you are a member of this church. So the faces, the people in this room are those you're supposed to be helped by and those that you're supposed to help. Does your life reflect that? Not your prayer closet, necessarily, though that's massive and important. Hopefully, the gathered prayer meeting as well. But does your actual day-to-day reflect the fact that these are the people that God has ordained that would help you live the life that would please Him, and vice versa? Let us run. How do we do it together? 
We're going to do this with each of the statements of this phrase. I believe that all of them grammatically are connected to the phrase at the end, looking to Jesus. Let us run, and you can go all the way to the end, looking to Jesus. Let us run, looking to Jesus. There is a unifying power of faith in Christ. I was asked uh, one time, I, I was in a group discipleship, right? Those are fun. Um, it was a pastor at a church where I was a member, and he was discipling me and two other guys who were in seminary. Um, and he asked us a question. He said, assume you one day become a pastor of a church that uh, has people from all different types of nationalities, different backgrounds, different levels of wealth, different educations, maybe people from different countries even, different languages. How do you promote unity in a situation like that? Do you have one Sunday that's all the music for one people group and then the next Sunday is all the music for the next people group? What do you do? How do you create unity in a diverse congregation? It's an important question. So, clever. I grew up with six brothers, so I I know the tactic of letting others speak first. uh, So you know what answers are wrong. Uh, So I did that. I let the two other guys answer first, and I realized, wow, they said what I thought I was going to say. And this pastor, he showed that that really wouldn't work or was inadequate, so I just pondered and thought while they were answering. And I said, you know, if Christ is made preeminent in the church, then it doesn't so much matter what culture I come from, or what my favorite songs are, or how I would prefer the service to be structured, or what programs we have or don't have. But if Christ is preeminent, if what we have in this room are believers, those who have been given the new heart by Christ himself through the Spirit, then that itself will unify us better than any other logistical or organizational attempt to bring unity. Because faith in Christ unifies us. That is how we run this race, looking to Jesus. As we set our eyes on Him, if He is our delight, if He is our treasure, then it doesn't matter our background and our preferences. They just get pushed to the background. And as we desire Him and run after Him, we come closer together. Unity in our running and unity in our pace comes from seeing and treasuring Christ above all things. And I would also argue, you won't even want to run if you don't see him. Even just as an individual, let alone us as a group. Let us run looking to Jesus. If you don't look to him, there's no incentive to run. It's not enjoyable. We'll talk about that in a little bit. There's there's no inherent appeal to a life of faithfulness to God. Only if Christ is the goal, is the prize, will you even want to run this race. But if you see him and how all-satisfying he is, then you will gladly give every ounce of strength to run the race with him as the goal. 
Even though no one loves running in and of itself, he's the prize. He's the reward. But if you don't see him, if your gaze is not set on him as the prize, if you don't see how all-satisfying he is, then you won't run, not for long. The sacrifice won't make sense, and you certainly won't care if you outrun or lag behind your brothers and sisters. A person who's just fine with having a supposed walk with the Lord, who doesn't work or strive to bring others along with them, is not a person who has gazed upon the goodness of Jesus Christ. His goodness and His all-satisfying person, all of His grace, all of His power, all of His majesty, that demands a life that brings others along. And you know this is true. Whenever you watch a movie or read a book or go somewhere that you really enjoy and you see how great and grand it is, you want to share about it. And you want to make it the case that others will come along and experience it too. You make recommendations. You become passionate about it. So if you've seen Christ, if you have seen Him, then you must want others to come along with you. But what is the race? And why won't it work to run it alone? The author says, let us run the race. This could also be translated, engage in the contest. Or it it could also be a metaphor for enduring peril. The root words here are where we get our words trek and agony. So it is sort of, an agonizing trek. Which is exactly how we describe a long-distance race. This is an agonizing trek. Part of why this is not, uh, this isn't funny at all is that this is how the author describes the Christian life. An agonizing trek. Translating it that way is a stretch. Um, Engage in the contest is good, or run the race is very fitting. But we do need to slow down and think about what he's he's actually saying. And this statement, agonizing trek, helps us do just that. Running a race has become so metaphorical and poetic that it loses the, the, the tangible impact of that statement. It almost sounds uh, flowery. Run the race. We need to think about what he's saying. Engage in the contest. Go on the perilous journey. The Lord wants you to know that this will not be easy. When you came to faith, when you trusted in Christ, were you signing up for what you thought would be a better life? Or your best life? Many people have, and yet the promise is that things will get more difficult. You have to ignore a truckload of texts in the Bible if you think that's not the case. Things will get more difficult. That's a promise. 
It's going to be hard, and there will be many points where you would wish that you could give up. This is the nature of an agonizing trek. There's no one who enjoys it for its own sake. That's the point. It is a hard struggle. We will endure much peril. It is a contest, and the stakes are very high. And this is why, brothers and sisters, you simply cannot do it alone. Let us run. Because the race we are to run is a dangerous, perilous journey. It is a high-stakes contest, and you don't want to take on such a venture by yourself. This is why you should go to the church that you go to. Your assessment should be, are these people the ones who are going to help me run this agonizing trek for the rest of my life? Am I going to get from these people that help that I so desperately need? Am I going to be able to help them? Are they going to let me in their lives so that I can provide assistance and help in their running of this race? And like I said, it's going to get harder. Jesus says in the parable of the weeds, let the both grow up together. The wheat and the tares. Things are just going to escalate and escalate and escalate until the Lord comes. There's going to be more gospel preaching, more people reached, more churches planted, more missionaries sent, more people coming to faith. But at the same time, it's going to get harder. There's going to be more persecution, more opposition, more systemic injustice against the people of God. And it's going to continue and escalate and escalate and escalate until the Lord returns. And I believe this is why verse 3 belongs in this paragraph. In most of your Bible translations, you probably see a break and a title there. In the ESV, it says, Don't grow, do not grow weary. And then it starts with verse 3. But verse 3 belongs up in the beginning because this is what Jesus did. This is his life, this agonizing trek, this perilous journey. He endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And it's huge. And it. That verse, verse 3, explains what looking to Jesus means, but we'll have to do that in later weeks to explore it in full. But for now, the race we are to run is a difficult contest. It's an agonizing trek. It's a perilous journey. And that is the life of Jesus. As we consider Him, His trials, His opponents, if we are in Him then those are our trials and our opponents. You might say, well, it's hard for me to identify with the sufferings and trials and tribulations of Christ because He never sinned. So the worst part of our experience, as we've already seen last week, the sin that so easily entangles us, that worst part is something that Jesus does not identify with because he was without sin. So how can we draw strength from, how can we draw endurance from Christ if he's so different from us because he did not sin? Think about this. It's a a bigger question than we can address in full, but consider this. What did Jesus do in preparation for an intense time of testing? He fasted and prayed for 40 days. 
He's the Son of God. He does not have a sin nature like we do. And he knows that a temptation, that a trial, that a test is coming, and he prays and fasts for 40 days. And this was not to weaken him so it could, he could be really tested. That's not the point of the passage. He was preparing for temptation. What do you do to prepare for temptation? I know that fasting is not an option for everyone, but the point is, does your preparation, does your resistance to the enemy, does your getting ready to run, does your relying on what graces God has given in your life look anything like what the Son of God Himself had to do or decided to do in preparation for His trial? And this is how we run the race. This is how we endure the perilous agonizing trek. We look to Him. He has already walked this path. He is our forerunner, and He has shown us the way. Not just as the goal, though I think that is the main point. That is why we look to Christ. He is the prize. He is the goal. He's the reason we run. But He is also the example of how we are to run. The goal must come first. But if He is your goal, then He can also be your example too. And let us run the race with endurance. If you've been listening, hopefully by now you know that this is almost redundant to say that we must run this with endurance. This is a hard, difficult journey, and it's going to get more difficult. So yeah, it makes sense, no duh, that it must be run with endurance. It's going to take a lot of grit, a lot of stamina, zeal, eagerness, prayer, energy, and skill in relying on the Holy Spirit. And it echoes back to chapter 10 when he said, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. There's a few helpful things if we connect that verse in chapter 10 with this one, it underscores that this perilous journey is another way of talking about the faithful Christian life. So that when you have done the will of God, this, this is not something that is just an isolation or a special way to live for the really dedicated, really zealous, really spiritual Christians. This race, this is for everybody. Because it is the will of God that you run this race. But what is endurance? How would you define it? Does it mean something like just not giving up? Is that what the Bible calls us to? Just don't give up. Certainly it says that. But is that all that it means by the word endurance? Let's keep the context in this idea of sports or athleticism, running a race. The image is more inward. It's an inward ability to keep going, an inward commitment or a strength of the heart to keep on going. It's a condition of your muscles to keep doing the same thing over and over and over. Having endurance then is more about the desire to keep going to keep going than in it than it is if you keep going, right? What I'm saying is this, you you can gain endurance on the early side of the end of the race. It's not 
if you make it to the end, then someone can say, well, I guess you had endurance. You can have endurance now. It can be yours. You can train and think the way that this passage is summoning us to think and look in the way that this passage is summoning us to look, and you can now have endurance. You can gain that inward desire and commitment to continue before the trial gets harder and harder and harder. So run it with endurance so you can finish it. That's the idea. And how do we get this endurance? There are certainly many places we could go in the Bible to answer that. We could think of maybe James chapter 1, how we grow in endurance. But for this question, at least, let's let the text answer itself. Because I think this is the point. I've been saying, looking to Jesus. Let us run with endurance, looking to Jesus. This is how we gain endurance. Faith in Christ, therefore, produces endurance. There's, there's a way to think about this text that goes, uh, let us lay aside the weights and the sin, let us run with endurance, the race, looking to Jesus, and just to separate it all out and not make the connections that you really need to make. The idea is rather this. Let's lay aside every weight looking to Jesus. Let's set aside the sin that entangles us looking to Jesus. Let's run the race looking to Jesus with endurance looking to Jesus. That's how the grammar works. So looking to Christ then, setting your gaze on Him is the way to see your endurance grow. So, good news, you don't have to run up and down the bleachers or do squats. Praise the Lord. But what makes this difficult, and depending on your situation, can be more difficult than squats and running the bleachers, is that there are many things in our lives that distract us. What gives us this endurance, as I've been saying, is our inner gaze at the person of Jesus Christ. And part of our condition with our inner heart, our our very us of us being inclined still towards sin, the old man not having been completely defeated yet or put off, it's something we got to put off every day, we are inclined or drawn towards or made to want to look at other things to chase after them. And this is not necessarily talking about your physical eyes, though that can be part of it. This is where the gaze of your heart is set. What are you looking at? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I want to issue a warning here that you not over-personalize this text. The idea is not the race that is set before us each individually. It's not, you have your race, I have my race, I have my cross to bear, I have uh, what God is calling me to do. Though there is a sense in which that is true, there are gifts that He has given you personally, and there's a unique position and time in human history that He has created you to exist. 
But the race is one race that he has called us to. It is the race that is set before all of us. And we're called to bear one another's burdens. It's not your cross to bear. It is mine too. Because bearing one another's burdens fulfills the law of Christ as we run this race together. It's one race. This is ours. So run it together. Don't rob your brothers and sisters from their opportunity to running their race well because you won't let them share in your burdens. That's theft of the highest order because that is the law of Christ. And if you think it's just your race and your thing and your path and your journey and you don't invite others to join into that and fold over your race or your journey into the journey that God has set before us, then you are robbing them of obedience to their king. Your burdens belong to us. Think about that. This phrase could also be translated, the race that is prescribed for us or laid out before us. It's as if an an obstacle course has been set up and, and we're supposed to go through it. And I want to be careful about how I explain this. But I don't want to soften this too much that it renders it inadequate to encourage you. What the author is saying in no uncertain terms is that God has set this agonizing trek in front of us. He is the one who is doing the prescribing. He is the one who is laying it out in front of us. He is the one who has set it before us. It's not by accident. It's not just because we live in a fallen world that it's hard. It is God's will and His wisdom and His good plan for you that this is an agonizing, difficult trek. How does that land on your heart? It's not just that God has never promised you an easy life. No, it is His wisdom, His plan, His ordaining that our journey would be perilous. God wants you to pursue His Son on a long, long race that will require a ton of endurance. Why? The author of Hebrews answers that in the rest of chapter 12. He says that we would share His holiness. It's too much to say with that in mind. We'll get to that down the line, Lord willing. But for now, I want to let Paul answer this question for us very succinctly and very easily. Why would it be the case that it is God's wisdom and his pleasure and his plan that we would pursue his son through a race, a perilous journey that is, that is extremely difficult and that requires a ton of endurance? Turn with me, if you would, to Romans 8. Romans 8, beginning in verse 16. I want you to pay attention to the words here. This answers the question, why is the Christian life so hard? It is not, well, bad things happen to good people, or we live in a fallen world. This is why, brothers and sisters, the things happen to you that they happen to you. Verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Wouldn't it be great if he just stopped the verse there? 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. That's a conditional statement. You are heirs with Christ in God, provided you suffer with him. And this is not, no, it is not talking about you participating in the sufferings of Christ through faith. That point is made elsewhere because he continues on in the next verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present life. Enduring trial and tribulation and suffering with Christ, sharing his sufferings, not just sharing the holiness of God. That's the point of Hebrews later on in chapter 12. But to get us there, to get us to a place where we can share his holiness, it takes us through a long, perilous, dangerous, suffering-filled road. We are heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Christ. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time don't let the sufferings of this present time cloud your mind because they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's why it is God's wisdom that you would endure this agonizing trek. Does that sound like wisdom to you? Does that sound like goodness, love? It is. The way to glory is through agony. And this is why the warning of James to the rich is so poignant. If you've got nothing going on in your life that is anything similar to suffering, if you can't connect in your mind, here is a difficult thing I'm going through, and this is some semblance of the sufferings of Christ, then you have no assurance that God is producing in you the salvation that will be revealed one day. Provided we suffer with Him. There has to be some similarity. If it's just nice and happy and joyful and peaceful in your best life now and your bank account's running over and your retirement plan is completely intact, you have serious reasons to be concerned. He provides solidarity with us, though, as we commit ourselves to the way of Christ. Suffering is inevitable. You ever tried to raise a kid in faithfulness to the Lord? You ever tried to stand on the promises of God with, as it relates to your work and your relationships with non-believers? No, you may not suffer death or terrible torture, but there is opposition Immediately. And maybe not even from any one person. The sufferings of Christ began with this temptation in the wilderness. The enemy hates it when you live your life in devotion to the Lord. And he rages against us. This is what it means to run the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. Jesus suffered in his life. Not so that we would not have to but so that he could be with us in it and enable us to do so victoriously. Because he triumphed over all suffering, including the sufferings of death on a cross, we can go through our lives, no matter if 2021 is worse than 2020. 
No matter if the governing authorities put more regulations on us, no matter if they take away more freedoms from us, if we have to peacefully protest and go to jail, it doesn't matter. Jesus has victoriously triumphed over all suffering, and so we can be in in solidarity with him and gain the inheritance that is promised us. If they hated me, they will hate you. Looking to Jesus, this last phrase, we've been mentioning it uh, at each point leading up to the end here. Hopefully you see the connection now. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Jesus came and did the will of the Father. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't the opposite of the plan for him to be opposed by the ruling authorities and the religious elite. That was God's plan. Offerings and sacrifices you have not desired, but a body you have given me, Jesus says. He came and accomplished the will of God. That race, that journey, even terminating in Jerusalem, was the race that was set before him, and he ran it faithfully. This is how we run it faithfully, recognizing that God's wisdom and his providence and his plan is overseeing the whole thing, and we don't have to become so fretful and worried that the whole thing is going to run off the rails, even if it ends in our untimely demise like it did in Christ's case it will result in glory and earlier in Hebrews it says this in the days of his flesh Jesus offered up loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence Even though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That is how we endure. We follow the example of Christ. As we contemplate his sacrifice for us, how he endured a suffering and an abandonment that we will never know the full extent of. As we contemplate it, though, we grow strong in our faith. Because we're looking to him. So now comes the central question. How do we look to Jesus? Hopefully you're not bored by these questions of going further back, further back, further back, asking why and how. You do need to have a childlike, humble posture to ask why and how with almost everything relating to your Bible. How do we look to Jesus? The answer for the author is the same he gave us all the way back in chapter 3. And this is why I think verse 3 belongs in in the first section of this chapter. Consider Jesus. Consider him. What does that mean? Again, another how or why. What does this mean? How is it that we are supposed to consider him? It is not our physical eyes that we are supposed to look to Jesus. We're not supposed to get some kind of icon or a crucifix to set our physical eyes on to strengthen our faith. It's not watching films about Jesus. 
images and actors. We don't set the eyes inside our skulls on a image of Christ to strengthen our faith. It's not seeing archaeological evidence. It's not seeing the Holy Land. It's not even thinking about apologetical arguments, all of which can be great. We are supposed to consider Him. It is a task of the mind. It is pure perception of the truth of the gospel. You have a set of eyes that are more important than the eyes in your head. And they look at different things. And the author is saying, set those eyes on Christ. As you think about what he did, verse 3, then the eyes of your heart are beholding him. Not your mental image of him. Not your imagination of what he might have been. As you think about the truth of the gospel, you are seeing him. Does that sound startling? That you actually see him in contemplating and considering the gospel? Look at 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians 4. Therefore, verse 1, sorry. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, meaning for Paul, of course, the truth of the gospel, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Did you catch that? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There is a light, a real spiritual shining out of the gospel that is perceivable by the eyes of your heart. And when you behold it, you are not beholding some idea. You are beholding the glory of Christ himself. Because the enemy is working really, really hard to make sure the unbelievers can't see it. It's really there and it can be seen as you consider his work in the gospel. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the only text in your whole Bible that mentions the face of Jesus You want to behold the very face of Jesus? You contemplate, you consider the gospel. And it's not just your idea of what he might look like. That's not what I'm talking about. You see him. This is how we look upon him. Looking to Jesus. Not some image hanging on the wall in your room. We consider him. We think upon him and his work, and God works by his spirit to direct your eyes to the very risen Son of God. That's how it works. 
This is how we set our eyes on him. And so, believer, you have everything you need for a life of holiness, for a life that pleases God, because you can, this moment, perceive the face of Jesus Christ. And that perception of him through faith gives us the endurance we need. And so this morning, consider this. Even though all that we've discussed is this, this perception, direct perception of faith as we contemplate the gospel, seeing Jesus, we have been given one thing that engages all of our senses to remember Christ and the hostility he endured, his agonizing trek, and that is, of course, the Lord's Supper. There is a power at work here that can't be explained in the physical things that are on this table. As we think upon him taking these elements, small as they are, if it is joined with faith, then your taking of the cup and the bread strengthens your faith. And you are able to see him as you do this. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the one physical act, the one physical thing that baptized believers are given to take and eat and participate in that has a direct correlation and an interwovenness with our faith union with Christ. But even so, faith comes first. None of this has any meaning unless it is joined with faith. If you don't set your mind on Christ as you take these things, then it has no benefit for you at all. And with that in mind, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus. Let a person then examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, discerning through faith the body and blood of Jesus, Discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Some of you might be wondering, with a text like this, a summons to run an agonizing trek, does that really fit with the concept of a celebration service? 
Celebration for the Christian is not ignoring difficult realities. It's not ignoring the truth. We don't set aside a time so that we can block out everything that's going crazy around us or that has been going horribly wrong since the beginning of creation and just celebrate for a moment of festive uh, feelings. That's not celebration for the Christian. Celebration is that given the fact that life is an agonizing trek and that it is God's wisdom to require that we follow Him and pursue Christ with endurance, yet He has provided for us the body and blood of Jesus, whereby through faith we can gain endurance for this race. We celebrate because what Christ has done for us victoriously in the face of suffering, knowing that because He was victorious, we can be too. That is, brothers and sisters, the gospel. We have been freed from the things from which the law could not free us in the body and blood of Jesus. And so we celebrate, not that all of these trials and tribulations are going away now, but that they will. And not only that they will be taken away, but they will produce in us a glory beyond comprehension. That is why we celebrate. That is why the body and blood of Jesus on a day such as this, as we close the book, Lord willing, on 2020, even if things become more difficult, like I said, we still have our union with Christ. And that is such a blessing as we celebrate it in these elements that it doesn't matter how difficult things get or who opposes us. We have our Messiah. We have our King. And so as we take of these small elements, join this act with faith. Perceive Him in the Gospel. Think upon what He did. The breaking of His body. The shedding of His blood. He says, this is my body broken for you as He broke the bread. This is My blood shed for you. Consider these things as we take them both. Let me pray for us. And what we'll do is I'll read another passage of Scripture while we form one line and come and take of the elements. And then return to your seat and we'll take them together. And if we could just form the line uh, over here and go clockwise around the center section so there's no... Uh, traffic jams. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even though it is your wisdom and your plan to give us this difficult path in the likeness of Jesus, you, however, have given us Christ himself through whom we can have endurance and joy in spite of the trials. Give us gratitude, not grounded on our circumstances or our aspirations for the future, but on what you have done in Christ and what you promised to do in him for us. I pray that as we've explored the very foundations of the Christian life and the, what can be sobering realities regarding it, Yet I pray that joy would be built there. 
And we can rebuild as we face this new year on a more sure foundation of joy. Thank you for exposing in us a lack of building our lives on the joy that comes from our salvation in this past year. Thank you that the trials and tribulations we have gone through have shown us where we don't trust you. As we take these elements, I pray that each person who stands and approaches the table would do so in faith. And I pray that if they cannot do so in faith, that they would remain seated and pray that you would give them faith. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Y'all can go ahead and form a line here. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, Take, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them who it could be who was going to do this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge all the, shall all the righteous, my servant, make many be accounted to be righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressions, yet he bore the sins of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. We're going to do something a little bit different as we take the elements. Uh, we have a responsive reading. This is from 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. I'll read the first section. If you would respond, we'll respond all together reading the second section. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And now would you please stand. The blood of Christ shed for you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The body of Christ broken for you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, thank you for giving us a sure foundation of joy in the sufferings of your Son. May we join him gladly and share his sufferings and gain our eternal inheritance. In Jesus' name, amen.